John chapter 10. John 10, 27, and reading down to verse 31. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I'll leave off reading there in verse 31. Again, as is been his custom, our Lord sets up a contrast between what he's doing on earth and what is going on among the religious Jews. This time the contrast is between the religious Jews and his sheep, not himself. Uh, those who are truly his sheep. Our Lord is speaking again to some of the Jewish leaders and to the Jews in general, as we, as we know from John chapter 9. He's speaking to those who have been persecuting him, as we know from John 5, who have been seeking to kill him, uh, who have been rejecting his message uh, all along, and who have been rejecting his works as not being a testimony of him being God. And who have been rejecting Him as the very Son of God sent by the Father to save sinners from their sins. And so, in verse 26, which I did not read, He says, But ye believe not, because ye are not My sheep, as I said unto you. And then He says, My sheep hear My voice. And so He sets up this contrast. They were not His sheep, because they would not hear His voice. They would not hear Him. They wouldn't listen to Him. They would not follow him. They did not want to know whether he was truly who he said he was or not. They, they were in the process of rejecting his words, his works, and his person. And in contrast to that, our Lord speaks of those that are truly his sheep. Verse 27, my sheep, those which belong to him. His very own sheep. He has already mentioned this phrase or phrases like this uh, in John chapter 10. In verse 4, you remember, he says, when he put it forth, his own sheep, uh, he goeth before them, the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. So he's already mentioned this before. John 10 and verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and am known of mine. And so this theme continues down through chapter 10. Those who he called his own sheep, those who he called my sheep, are his because they belong to him. That's the difference. You see, there's a contrast set up. Some of these belong to him, some do not. And so he's, he's got this two groups of people that he's set in contrast one with another. How did he come into possession of them? Well, we've already seen through some of the text in the scriptures, but let's, let, me ta let me take some time to remind you. His sheep were given to him by his father. The text we read this morning confirms that. Verse 29, my father, which gave them me, is greater than all. In John 6, we'd already, he had already spoken about 
that, had, that was given to him by his father. John 6, 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Verse 39 of John 6. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me that of all which he hath given me I should lose none. So over and over throughout the scriptures especially in the Gospel of John we see that these sheep were given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know from the Old Testament, we also know from the other text in the New Testament that the Father has given him these people. He is going to die for their sins. He's going to be buried for them. He's going to raise to justify them. He's going to ascend, take his place on his throne to intercede for them. He's going to save them. They're his by possession from his Father. But they were also his by purchase at Calvary. We see this in John 10 already also. Verse 11. We've already looked at it. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And in that text, he's referring to the lost sheep of the nation of Israel. We keep reading down through the text and we come to verse 16. And he says, and other sheep making reference to the lost sheep among the Gentile nations. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, that is of the fold of the sheep of Israel, they are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold, that middle wall of partition being broken down, where all the elect of Israel and all the elect of the nations are gathered together, into one fold. They shall hear my voice. There shall be one fold and one shepherd. But he continues on in verse 17 and 18 and says, Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. And in verse 13, 18 he says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. No man taketh it from me. Just as a side note. There is a common teaching among more liberal people. Liberal thinking people. That Jesus was a martyr. Died for a good cause. A good example to follow. A martyr's life is taken from him by another. Our Lord says, no man taketh it from me. The scriptures are, will always answer the errors of the day in which we live. Well, he was a good man. Yes, he was. But he was more than that. He was the God-man, the Son of God incarnate. Yes, the scriptures add to it and define who he truly is. In the Old Testament, we find this truth also. In past messages, I've already mentioned Isaiah 53, 6. I want to come back there again this morning, but add a couple of verses in Isaiah 53. He got possession of his sheep from his father and by purchasing them at Calvary. Isaiah spoke of it in Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He became the substitute. He became the sheep 
which all of Israel would know that if you laid your hands on the head of that sheep, symbolically you were transferring your sin to that sheep, and an innocent died in the place of a guilty. Isaiah picks up that theme, and under inspiration of God, says, God laid our sins on his sheep, a shepherd, his sheep to take our place, and he died in our place. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53. By the way, he is our shepherd, and he's also the sheep that takes away the, the sheep that died in our place to take away the, our sins, right? John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the life. He is our priest, but he's also the one who makes the offering of himself as our priest. And so this is what's going on when Christ went to Calvary. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. By what means? For he shall bear their iniquity. What Christ did in purchasing his sheep was to take their sin upon himself, pay for that sin on himself. We are not bruised by the judgment rod of God. He is bruised. We are not brought to grief under the just punishment for our sins. He took our grief. We are not offered up for, as a sacrifice that can never take away sins. He is offered up as a sacrifice who could take away sins. We are not suffering the penalty of death for our sins. He suffered the penalty of death for our sins. We could never satisfy the righteous law and demands of God. He satisfied God in our place. He purchased his sheep at Calvary. In the New Testament, we read verses like Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. For when we were yet without strength, not able to do what God requires of us to do. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, violators of the law of God, Christ died for us in our place. He purchased us. He died for us. He gathered us together. Our sin, as it were, were gathered together and laid on him. He paid for it. His righteousness was gathered up and laid on us. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he, Father, the Father, hath made him the Son of God to be sin for us. Who knew no sin, this Son of God had no sin, knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I remember once at the Bible study in Brownwood saying, if I had one verse out of all the texts, of all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, to lay hold on, to preserve, while all the rest would be destroyed, I would pick this verse. That is a summation of all that God has done to save sinners. God laid on Him who knew no sin, our sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I'm thankful that we don't have just one verse. I'm thankful that we have a whole Bible full of verses. But if I only had one, this would be the text that I would run to.
Paul writes about this in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. He says in Hebrews 10 verse 11, And every priest, he's speaking with Jewish believers, they know about the priest who standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. They know about the priest offering sacrifices which cannot take away sins. They know about a religion of activity that cannot take away sin. But then he makes this contrast. But this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. And then says, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. God set us apart. The word sanctified, set apart for God. God set us apart as a group, the sheep that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He took the sin of that people, placed it on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ perfected them by paying for their sins. Even in our lost estate, we were his. Even when we were lost sheep, we were his. And even in the lost condition of every man, woman, and child from the time that, of Adam until now, that has been given that number that the book of Revelation says no man can number, that number, though, that was given to Christ, even lost he went seeking after them because he would not lose not even one of them. I was thinking about this message this week, and it took my mind to Luke chapter 15. So let's go over there. Luke chapter 15. I want to read beginning in verse 3 and read down to verse 7. It's a parable that a expression of a physical event that testifies to a spiritual doctrinal event. He spake this parable, Luke 15, 3, unto them saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. Do you see those words, children? He goes after the lost until he finds it. He doesn't stop short of gaining it. He is actively involved in going after sinners and bringing them back. Why? They belong to him. He has a hundred sheep. One is missing. And he is not content with 99. One is missing. And so he goes after it until he find it. Verse 5. Then, and when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. I'm going to stop here and inject something here. He layeth it on his shoulders. The shepherd does not stand behind the sheep with a whip driving them. Get to the house, get to the house. Come on, get to the house. He does not do that. And in this particular case, he doesn't even go before the sheep leading it. Although that's what the shepherd does. He leads and we follow. In this particular case, he picks up that lost sheep and lays it on his shoulder and carries it all the way home. This is the love of the shepherd for his sheep. He will not lose one of them. When he comes home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me. Why? 
for I have found my sheep which was lost. I now have the full complement of the hundred. I say unto you likewise, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. As heaven rejoices, as the Lord Jesus Christ takes and captures one more of his lost sheep to bring them home with him. He, his Father has given them to him. All of them entrusted to his hands. He said of that which was entrusted to him by his father, I will not lose one of them. He went to Calvary's cross to take their sin upon himself, and there he paid for their sin, purchasing them in a legal transaction, and says to his sheep, I will not lose one of you. My sheep, my own sheep, I will not lose one of them. And that's why from the days of Jesus Christ mentioning this in verse 16, other sheep I have until this day and from this day to the end of time, he is actively involved in gathering together his sheep and saving them from their sins. He says of his sheep in verse 26 or in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them. I know them. Those who are not his sheep are not known of him in the same way as those who are his sheep. These are known in a special way. The word know here in John 10, 27, I know them. That word comes from a Greek word which means to know in a personal and intimate way. To know in a personal and intimate way. We know that God knows all things. I have taught you, you'll remember the word omniscient. God knows all things. God knows about all things. God knows all the events. Known unto God are all of his works from the beginning of the world, from the foundations of the world. God knows all things. But that's not what this is talking about here. He is all-knowing. Knowing all the facts and all the things. But this word does not refer to the fact that he is omniscient, knowing all things. This word refers to the fact that he has a personal, intimate knowledge of his sheep. A relationship based upon a personal and intimate love for his sheep. There are some he does not know in this way. In Luke chapter 13, verse 24 and 25, we have this same word, but we have it used differently. Luke 13, 24, he gives instructions to sinners, strive to enter at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Verse 25, when once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door and, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not. Same word. I don't know you in that personal, intimate way that I know these that are mine. I know you not whence you are. Same exact word used negatively. These I know. These are my own sheep. This one I don't know. Not that I don't know about him because he knows all things. But I don't know this one in the same exact way as I know this one. 
It is a very particular word. It speaks of the peculiar kind of love that God has for his children. There are others that he knows in a personal and intimate way, in an eternal way. In the Old Testament, the prophet Nahum speaks about this. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. Nahum 1 7. One of those nomadic prophets. Not there when you want to find him because he's gone someplace and you forgot where it was. Nahum 1 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them that trust in him. Hebrew word, but with the same kind of meaning. This verse uses the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word that we're looking at. And both the Hebrew and Greek word teaches us that God has a special and personal knowledge of his own sheep, as of his own people, a knowledge that relates to his love for them. In the New Testament, we see it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth. Same word, them that are his. God knows them. Paul, writing to the Romans, says it in Romans 11 and verse 2. Speaking of the, of the Jewish people, speaking of the nation of Israel, in Romans 11 and verse 2 says of those people, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Same word except this time compounded with a word that means knew in advance. To know or love in advance. God has not cast away the Jews that he has foreknown. Same Hebrew or Greek understanding. There are some that God knows in a special way. And there are some that God does not know in a special way. And if you will be saved this morning, it will be that you are known of God, that you know Him and He knows you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I reversed I know them from hear my voice. I didn't leave off hearing my voice on purpose. But I put it next because I want you to show that those who know God and are known of God hear His voice. Remember in verse 26, But you believe not because you are not my sheep as I said unto you. There are some who do not believe because they will not hear His voice as we'll see in a few minutes. His sheep hear His voice. In John 8 in verse 43 Jesus said to these same Jewish people that he's speaking to here, Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my voice or my word? So again, the contrast is set up. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. His own sheep in John chapter 10, Other sheep I have, which are not of this full, them I must bring and they shall hear my voice. They shall. So here's the question I want to ask this morning. What is it to hear the voice of the Son of God? What is it to hear the voice of the Son of God? Well, let me answer it with a couple of negatives first. First, it is not the same as hearing a physical voice. Every one of you are hearing my voice this morning. It is a physical voice. 
resonating in your ears. There's a physical transaction happening that you're taking the movement of air and translating it. Your brain is doing all of that without you thinking about it. It is not a physical voice. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't come to a sinner and say, it's, Matthew, I want you to come and follow me. And you hear a physical voice and say, oh, okay, I think I'll do that. That's not what we're dealing with here. Secondly, it is not the same as hearing a voice in your head. Be careful with that. I want every one of you, I'm going to do this little experiment, okay? Do not say the word out loud, but say it in your head. Say the word apple. Did you just hear it? I just heard it. I just heard the word apple. Did it come out of my mouth? I mean, just now I did, but did it a while ago? No. But I heard something. I heard something. Paul warns us about taking our thoughts into captivity and making sure they're from God and not from some other source. It is not the same as a word that shows up in your mind. God speaks to the heart. It's different. But it begins this way. Listen carefully. Hearing the shepherd is directly related to hearing the word of God. It begins there. doesn't end there, but it begins there. It is an ability to read and hear the word of God and to believe it to be the very word of God and not the words of men. That is important. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 13, Paul writes to them about his ministry among them. He came preaching the gospel. They heard the words of the apostle Paul coming out of his mouth. They heard him reading the scriptures coming into their ears. But that wasn't what saved them. Paul writes him in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and he says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because, notice the wording here, when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you heard it physically, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Hearing the shepherd's voice begins. It doesn't end here, but it begins here. It begins with this truth. And that is that no sinner hears the Savior calling them out of darkness into light unless he first accepts the Bible as God's Word. And what God says in His Word is being true. It begins there. When we were in India, Northeast India, we would talk to a lot of people. We've talked to a lot of people. I had a dream. And in that dream, Jesus said, I can make you prosperous. And because of that, I wanted to become a Christian. I had a dream. And in that dream, Jesus said, I can heal you. And because of that, I became a Christian. I had a dream. How many times did we hear that? Multitudes. Multitudes. Words were spoken in the mind, in a dream. And none of those words true. They were not based upon the Word of God. It begins right here. Unless you believe the Bible is God's Word, and in it is truth, you can go no further in believing the Lord Jesus Christ.
Paul says those who were saved in Thessalonica received the word of God. That word means that they welcomed it. They accepted it. They believed it to be the word of God, not the word of men. They accepted it. Here's where we begin. Here's where salvation begins for a sinner. You open up the word of God and you look on the pages of the word of God and this is God speaking. God speaking. And this is what God has to say about his son. And this is what God has to say about me. And this is what God has to say about everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. Hearing the gospel message in the word of God is associated with a kind of faith. Listen to the scriptures. Hebrews 4 and verse 2. With faith. Not a kind of faith, but with faith. Hebrews 4, 2. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But, what Paul? The gospel was preached unto us, but is also preached to them. But, what, what, what happened? What? A contrast. The word preached did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. They did not believe it. It was preached to them. They heard it. It came off the pages of the, of the very word of God. But they did not believe it. They would not believe that this was the word of God. The unbelieving Jews despised the word of God. They had by this time in their history changed it so much that they trusted what their changes were rather than what the scripture says. They despised the word of God when they heard it and it was in conflict with their religion. They said, no, this cannot be true. They would not receive it. They did not want to listen to it. It challenged their thinking and their religion. They did not want to believe it. And because they did not want to believe it, the preaching of the Word of God did not do them any good. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life is directly related to believing what the Word of God says about those subjects. What the Word of God says about God. What the Word of God says about the Son of God. What it says about the true condition of sinners. What it says about the absolute necessity of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely necessary, according to the Scriptures, if a sinner is going to be saved. And what it says about the necessity of sinners repenting of their sins and calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save them from those sins. God's message is set before all mankind. In His message, God declares that He is ready to save sinners from their sins through His Son. If they believe that and receive Jesus Christ, God is working in them to save them. If they do not believe it, that message is useless for them. It has no value. In fact, 
it becomes a testimony against them. As Paul warns that gospel preachers are sometimes a, a minister of life as well as a minister of death. God's message is of no advantage to the multitudes if they do not believe what God has said about it. Why don't they want to believe? Why don't they believe? Not why don't they want to believe. That's the wrong question. Why do they not believe? Let me give you several reasons. First, many don't want to listen. That's what we're dealing here in this text. Many do not want to listen. They do not want to respectfully sit, hear God's message, pay attention to it, and give thought to it. They won't do that. They don't want to. They do not go near a place where the gospel is preached. I'm not going to go to church on Sunday. I'm not going to go in there and sit down, sit respectfully, listen to what is being said, and give attendance to what's being said and consideration that it might be true. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go fishing. Uh, I'm going to go hunting. I'm going I'm to do something. But I am not going to that church on Sunday morning. But some do come to church in gospel services and they sit there, but their minds are over here. Or their minds are over there. Their minds are not here. They're wandering here and there and yonder. Secondly, many do not believe God's word and therefore they will not believe the gospel message that comes from God's world. They have doubts. Is God real? I've got people in my own family. They don't some have said they're an atheist. Some have said we're agnostic. They got questions. They doubt the existence of God. Doubts about particular doctrines of the, of the scriptures, of the gospel. Can this really be true? And because of those doubts, they do not want to believe God's message. And those doubts have got to be overcome, and they only be overcome by one thing, and that's the Scriptures. But they won't listen to what the Scripture says. A man that has doubts and comes to the Scriptures honestly can have his doubts answered. If he's got questions and he has an honest heart, he can come to the Scriptures and it'll answer him for him. If he really wants to know what God says about this or that, come to the Word of God and find out. But there are some with doubts that will not do that. Let me ask you a question on a human level here. Can any man profit from history? Let's take the history of our nation. Can any man profit from the history of our nation unless he believes the historical record? Let's take math. Can any man profit from math unless he believes the mathematical records? What about science? Can any man profit from science unless he believes those records that have built up this science? No. The answer, of course, is no. Everyone here knows the answer to that is no. There is nothing in this world that you can profit from until you first make an agreement that the records that have brought to us to this point have some accuracy in them and I can believe them and that's why I believe this. 
They go back to the records. Anyone here met personally George Washington? No. Anyone here believe George Washington was our first president? Yes. Why? Well, the records. What use is all the information that mankind has accumulated? What use is any of it? If it cannot be searched to discover the worthiness of what it is saying. Now are some records we need to be rejecting. But if it cannot be searched to discover the worthiness of what it is saying, then it is of no use. That's on a human level. And on a human level, everyone would say, this is true in the physical world. And I'm saying to you that if it is true in the physical world, it is especially true as it relates to God and His salvation. The facts of the history recorded in the Scripture are irrefutable. Now, there are some facts in history that can be refuted. But the facts of the history recorded in the Scriptures are irrefutable. Jesus Christ was born. He did live. He did die. The whole world have records on it. And God preserved His record here for us. The flood is irrefutable. There are records all over mankind, all over, that speak of it. By the way, the scientists have been for years, and the archaeologists have been for years denying the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the prominence of God, recently I was speaking to Royce about this and, and, and Jeff Harris about this. They've both been over to Israel. They've both gone to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is receding. Archaeologists are running to gather dig where the sea was. Guess what they're finding out? There's some cities underneath here. Jeff did not go, but Royce went to an area that is now outside of Israel. I think Jordan. Don't hold me to that. Ask Royce about it. To the plain where all the villages were, towns. A busload of them got out, and as far as you can see in any direction, covered with stones that are black. Royce has one of them. Looks like asphalt covered it. As far as you can see. Now, those physical things do not confirm for us the scriptures. We believe that long before we found out those things over there. Well, what I'm saying to you is the record is true. And men said, no, 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 it's not true. These places didn't exist. They do because God said they exist. The fact that men are just now discovering it in 2000 and so and so doesn't mean that it hasn't been true all these years. God has said it existed. Many live as though there is no truth in the Bible. They live as though there is no reason to believe God's offer of eternal life is true because, after all, there's no truth in the Bible. They live as though God's warnings of the danger of a coming damnation is not true because, after all, there's no truth in the Bible. 
having no faith in the biblical record, they are not benefited at all by God's offer of heaven through His only begotten Son, of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, if you believe on me, you have everlasting life. They're not benefited at all. They close up this book and say it is not true. Hearing God's, the, hearing the sheep, hearing the voice of the shepherd begins here. We open up the scriptures, and this is the word that God has said. And we read it, and we listen to it, and we consider it. They follow me, he said. Quickly. The Lord Jesus Christ is followed. Because he's our savior. He's the one who has saved us from our sin. He's our shepherd. He's the one that will lead us. Beside the still waters and in green pastures. He's our prophet and priest and king. And uh, we have received him as the one who speaks to us in these last days. And the one who has offered a sacrifice for us. And the one who rules over us to protect us. We, we trust him for these things. We believe him to be faithful in those things. And so we are following him. We believe his word when he says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. And we have entrusted our soul to him. And he has promised, if you entrust your soul to me, I will take care of it and I will, I will preserve it. I will give you everlasting life. We've called upon him and we found out that he forgives sins. And we are, find out as we live through our Christian life day by day that when we call upon him again and ask for forgiveness, that he does do so. And not only forgiven, but he cleanses us and restores us. These things we have seen because we've seen him in the scripture first. And what the Word of God says is true, and we've experienced it. The Bible declares that He gives unto you what you cannot gain for yourself or on your own behalf. As you believe in Him and trust in Him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, He says unto you, I give unto you everlasting life. John 10, verse 27, 28. Let's read them together. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. They are secure. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. As we wrap this up, let me make a few thoughts. The sheep have a soul-saving possession. What is that? Eternal life. I give. Not I will give. How many Baptist people, plus others, have I spoken to that believe that when they die, God's going to give them eternal life? No. I give. Present tense. Not I may give, conditional upon what you do. If you do thus and thus and this and this and do it just right, you're going to get it. No. But I give. Present tense, continuous. Life without end to you. Life that is different from the physical life. Life that continues after this physical life is over. Not only that, but they have a soul-securing possession. That is, they are secure in their soul. They shall never perish. The word never is a double negative. What he is saying is, they shall never, no, never, not ever, perish. 
because it's not up to them. And they are safe with Him. The guarantee of eternal life, the internal security that belongs to them, that comes along with eternal life, is safe because God has it in His hand. They are there in His hands and they are in the Father's hands. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hands. I was talking to a church of Christ one time and he said, but we can pluck ourselves out. Because they believe you can lose your salvation. They believe you can get it and they believe you can lose it. And I said, what part of the words no man do you not understand? Are you a man? Yes. Then no man is able to pluck you. Not even you. Out of my hands. Our Lord will never, no, never cast out those or lose those that belong to Him. They are safe. They are secure with Him. He has promised to go and seek that which is lost. He lays them up on His shoulder. He brings them to His home. They are delivered there safely. There is rejoicing when He does that in heaven. They are secure because it's not them that has got it and it's not them that have to keep it and there's not them that are hoping for it on the other end. But it is He, the Lord Jesus Christ, who purchased it for them, who secures it for them, who secures them in it, who carries them off to glory so that they arrive on the shores of glory in the presence of the Father. Accept it in the Beloved. The Jews had a religion where they were working as hard as they could to get to God. Christ says, it's not that. I do it for you. You don't do it for yourself. His own sheep, those he calls my sheep, actually have in possession eternal life. They are not bound by their efforts to keep it. They are not bound by their efforts to please the Lord in order to keep being saved. They cannot be defeated by any of their enemies, nor any of the enemies of God. They are secure, based upon the promise that God has made them. Almighty God has said, I have chosen you, I have purchased you, I have secured you. You are mine. And they are safe. It has nothing to do with their personal strength, or their personal resolutions. It is God who has resolved to have them for His own. None can, none will be able to pluck them out of His hand or His Father's hand. No wolf, no thief, no robber, no murderers of men's souls, no hireling, no demon, not even the devil himself can separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We are secure. And of all the people on the face of the earth, we are most blessed. Let's pray.